Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of The Freed Thinker. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Uh, thank you for those of you who are returning to the channel from this morning's live stream, uh, where I was joined by Eli Ayala uh, to give some responses to some uh, presuppositional uh, critics, uh, some critics of, of presuppositionalism. So thank you very much for, for coming back if you were here this morning. And if not, thank you for joining us for the first time today. Uh, if you're here uh, watching live, um, you can always have, ask your questions in the comments section. I'll try to get the, uh, to those. Uh, if you're watching this after the fact, you can't ask them live, but you can always uh, message me your comments. So today uh, we're going to be doing something uh, a little bit different. Well, kind of different. Uh, so previously, some of you know that I had Chris Date on to review the debate he had recently with uh, with Will Duffy. And so today I am joined by Mr. Will Duffy. Will, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, we, we have been talking. You wanted to come on and do... A, uh, a a debate recap review discussion afterwards, um, and so uh, we decided to, to work this out. Uh, my audience will will absolutely know that you and I disagree on almost everything related to this topic, uh, and so it's going to be a very interesting. You know, normally debate recaps and reviews are are either among neutral parties or uh, you know you get the side that you that you think uh, won or agreed with and have them on. So I had Chris date on uh, previously. Um, so, but you want, you wanted to, to come on and have this discussion. Um, and, and we both agreed, uh, we don't want this to be debate version 2.0. Right. Uh, and we want this to be a, a useful conversation. So we said, Hey, let's, let's just do it. Like, uh, like two friends at a coffee shop, having a discussion, uh, after the debate and see how it goes. Um, so, you know, you, you will hear some of my, uh, some of my criticisms and, and, and thoughts, but hopefully it's, you know, done, uh, hopefully you see it in the, in the friendly, uh, intent, uh, that it's there for. Um, and I and I and I do want to say before you know before we go into this, um, you know, hopefully people who saw, saw our interaction previously, our debate before, uh, will know that you know there's no there's no animosity between us, even if there's even if there's theological and, and doctrinal tension. I mean, I think you're you're probably one of the nicest guys uh, out there to discuss with. I've never got the sense, uh, you know, there, there are some open theists that I just I, I roll my eyes at. Um, just their style, you know, I've never gotten the sense that you're anything but cordial and genuine, uh, you know, you're not, you're not out there trolling. You're not, you know, you're not out there just kind of being a, a jerk to people. Um, so I, I mean, happy, happy to have you on and have the discussion because I think you're, you're, you're a really cool guy. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so do, do, do what you want with that. Um, even though I think we, we disagree on, on about every point of this. So, uh, with that, in 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 the in the spirit of coffee shop discourse, I guess you know I didn't come with a lot of questions, not a lot of format. Um, but I guess my first question is, um, well, looking back on 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 the debate, maybe you know walk me through um, as a debater, as someone who you know studies the art of debate. I'm always interested, like what was the discussion like to arrive at the topic? Because you you didn't have a proposition debate proposition where someone takes the, the you know, the, the, the positive and, or the affirmative and the negative. You did a, a question, which means essentially both sides bear, carry a burden in that sense. Um, does open theism best explain bi the biblical data? What was kind of the, the you know, the lead up to, to that? Yeah. Before we dive in, I'd like to say something else. Um, sure. I, I want to just mention why I'm doing this with you. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of uh, friends and a lot of acquaintances online that are that, that are really kind of questioning me for doing this <laughs> you know they're, they're like why, why would you you know go on tyler vela's show 
podcast for this. Um, so where, where I come from, you know, I, I think this would be important for you to understand when I look at someone like you, when I look at someone like Chris date, here's the only boxes that I need checked to know that we're on the same team. And again, this is my perspective. Uh, I see both of you guys and others, you know, you're, you love God, you, you know, from all things that I can see, you love your, your wife and you love your kids and that's it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned that, uh, th those are kind of the things that make us uh, on the same team. And the other thing is, is that I, interestingly enough, I don't like debates. Um, th this might shock people, but I actually really don't like them. And the reason I don't like them is because number one, there's like a time aspect to it. And I struggle to think quickly on my feet. I struggle if I'm like worried about time and, and focusing on time. Um, and then there's just the, the reality of in a debate, you know, somebody could just talk and talk and talk and talk and waste all the time. And then I, I have to deal with that. Uh, and so anyway, I, I actually prefer conversations like this. I kind of wish Christians, theologians, philosophers, et cetera, would have more conversations like this, where there isn't a time element, there isn't a back and a forth, and then this person goes, and then this person goes. So anyway, I, uh, yeah, I, I think this is great. And then the last thing I'll say is, is that, you know, th this isn't, this isn't a war that, you know, we're not with one country fighting another country. This isn't sports where it's like, you know, you, you've got to win at all costs with the other team. You know, this is like real life stuff that we're dealing with here. And it's, you know, there's eternal ramifications. And so I always tell people I'm never going to turn down a discussion. Uh, I, I, to, to date, I've never turned down a debate if somebody asks me to debate because we've got to, we've got to figure this stuff out. And, and if, uh, if it takes a debate to learn that you're wrong about something, so be it. So anyway, that's why I'm here. That's fair. That's entirely, I mean, I, and I agree with, with, uh, with those sentiments. Um, you know, I, I, for, for me, I find, I find the debates are useful because they're pointed and they keep, they keep things on a topic. Right. So, so mm. we might, we might have this because we're free form and we have a discussion where we may just meander down rabbit trails and, 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 and have our, have a hard time coming back to what the point debates, the, the, the benefit of debates is they clearly, they clearly show, show two sides. Um, and it tends to laser focus on a very specific topic. And mm -hmm. I find that is very, 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 very helpful. Um, and the debates typically are not for the debaters, right? The, the, I don't think I've ever seen a debate where the debater changed their mind. I have seen people where the debates after the fact, you know, and they start mm -hmm. exploring, they, they start thinking about some things of it later, you know, a couple months later, they change their mind. I have seen that happen. Um, but typically it's for the audience, right? It's for the audience to get kind of a snapshot of what are the biggest, you know, the body blows in these types of discussions, theologically, philosophically, whatever, whatever, you know, ethically, depending on what the topic is, what, what are, what's kind of at stake? What are some of the, the, the best arguments for best arguments against? And it gives them a framework to start thinking through some of these things. So I find debate very, very helpful for that, for that sense. I will say though that, uh, and, and, uh, for, for anyone who, who has seen, um, uh, Nate Sala's show, The Debate Teacher, uh, it's De Wise Disciple is the actual show, but he does this whole series called Debate Teacher Reacts. And he was a debate teacher. He did debate coach in, uh, I think, high school level. And he reviews a whole bunch of debates. Um, and and it's interesting, you know, for, for those of us who study debate and debate tactics and strategies and all that kind of stuff, 
you you come to realize that there that there are times where someone can win a debate even though you think they're fundamentally wrong uh i i have had I, i've actually spoken to a lot of calvinists after the fact that, and i've watched them go on debates because they think that they just kind of can go into a debate having not really prepped or studied or thought about debate itself just maybe they've studied the topic a lot and they think that equips them to do a debate um it actually it doesn't i've had to be like oh you really like I'm on your side. You totally lost your debate. You, like you flat out lost. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll be sometimes where I'm, you know, where I, where I push back on you and be like, oh, you know, because I'll be, I'll be frank. I don't think you won the debate, but that isn't a factor because I disagree with you, right? So uh, I, I could, I could. There's lots of debates where I think the atheist won, or I think there, there. I've actually seen some debates where I think the open theist won. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not a feature of that. Um, so I think, but it, so th there is a sense where you're right that debates can be unproductive sometimes because someone could be a very skilled debater and win a debate, and that might not necessarily advance truth. Um, and that unfortunately is, it's, it's not necessarily a bug, it's kind of a feature how debates work, but that sadly is the case sometimes. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, let's dive in. Yeah. So, so back, so back to, um, you know, so, and maybe it's brief, maybe it's just as simple as this was, this was the, the question we could agree on. You know, I have been in parts of debates like that, that that's what happens. You know, I've, I've done debates where it's a question and you both have a side and I've done debates. I prefer dates with debates where there's a proposition and a clear affirmative and, and negative. It just keeps things cleaner, I think, but I've been a part of these. Um, so, so why does open theism best explain the biblical data? Was there, was it just the mutually agreed upon or was there, you know, some back and forth on that? Yeah. Great question. Um, I don't know where it came from. I had no say, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the topic was given to me. Okay. Um, I actually, uh, agreed to the debate before I knew who I was debating. Um, uh, Did you get some... nervous? I, so I, people have asked me to debate Chris date on hell. I haven't turned it down. We've talked about doing something in the future. Maybe like Chris, Chris Tate's one of the guys, like he's a scary, smart guy and a, and a, just a quick wit. Like, like, I, and, and like I said, when he was on, like, you know, I, this was not, I don't think this was, and I told him that I'm not hiding. I don't think this was, I think this was by far one of his weaker debates, but like Chris Tate on a bad day is still better than most people on a good day. He's a scary, smart guy. Were you like, once you found out as Chris, you were like, oh, <laughs> that's going to be tough. No. Um, okay. So, so Santi Rangel contacted mm -hmm. me and said, hey, would you come on my show to discuss open theism? And I said, sure. And I just asked him how he found out about me. And he said, oh, whenever I bring up open theism online and ask for names, your name usually comes up. And I said, sure, happy to. So I thought I was going to have a conversation with Santi. Then, uh, as things progressed, he let me know that it was more more going to be a debate, that there was a format, that there was a, you know, quote unquote, resolution that we were going to be discussing. And I never asked him anything. <laughs> and then he sent me an email maybe a month ago. And he, he, he said in there something like, you'll go first, Chris will go second. And I responded and I said, okay, that sounds fine. Who's Chris? I had no idea. Oh. Yeah. And he, it's fine. I don't really care. Yeah. Like I, I, nothing, nothing wrong was done, but he said, Oh, Chris date is who you're going to be debating. And I said, okay, great. So I didn't know who Chris date was. So I looked him up 
and started watching his videos and, and debates, but I, I never really got nervous. Um, th this is going to be a little bit of a criticism of him. And I wasn't, I'm not the only one that's noticed this. If he ends up watching this, I think this would help him to make a change going forward. He's going to, he might, he, he, he actually told me he might try to watch it live, but if oh. not, he's watching it. So he's going to be watching it. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So as I was watching his debates, I noticed a couple of things that he does. And again, super knowledgeable guy, uh, knows way more than I know. Uh, he will do two things that, that stood out to me. And as I was watching the debates, I would also read the comments during the debates and other people were commenting in similar things. So I think people are noticing. One thing he does is he will take, he will use a position that he doesn't hold to get out of an argument. And he, 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 even, he even did that when he was debating a Muslim and, and the Muslim uh, fans that were commenting noticed that as well. And I don't think that's a good tactic. This happened in our debate, and I, I saw it happen in other debates where I'll, I'll listen to a video and I'll hear him articulate some sort of a view in response to a question. And then in other debates and ours, we'll bring that up and he'll be like, well, I don't hold to that position. So that I don't like. The, the other thing he does on occasion, I'm not saying he does this all the time because, again, he's very, very sharp. But sometimes he will just start talking and use a lot of words and big words and, it, and, and if you don't know what he's saying, it, it sounds like, well, the guy is smart. He knows what he's saying. But I think he's just saying things because he doesn't necessarily know how to answer something. So those are a couple of, quote unquote, debate tactics that I've that I've seen him do. Well, it, I mean, if I can, I, I've watched a lot of his debates um, and I think I know what you're getting at. I, I, I think I can think of a couple couple times where it is. Um, I'm not sure either of them are bad. Um the, the reason why is because, well, it's, it's not, you, you have to realize that, that Chris is coming. How do I say this? I don't mean this as a criticism. Chris is coming from, from largely an academic background. Mm -hmm. um, and there, and there is a certain sense where if someone, if, if you're, if your interlocutor is, is making an argument that relies on a certain assumption or position or proposition or principle or something like that, you can defeat that by by arguing for another position that you don't even necessarily hold, right? So so if so if you're not having the burden, if you're not trying to say I'm not trying to defend my view, I'm simply trying to critique this other statement. It is entirely valid to say, well, you know, even if this other position is true, that's false. Like I can give because sometimes it's clearer that this position isn't necessarily true by appealing to something that maybe both of you would agree on. Right. So, um, uh, does that, does that kind of make, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So I'll give you two examples that I yeah. heard in preparation for the debate. Um, one time he explained how, if there's two timelines, one for God and one for the created universe, that that completely resolves an issue. And then in the debate, I brought that up and he's like, well, I don't hold the two timelines. And then yeah. in, a, yeah. in, a, in another debate, I think it was actually with Jake, uh, I forget his last name, but he, he's a Muslim. Um, Chris said, well, if, if there, if, if God, the son has two minds, then that completely solves that issue. And then in another video, he, he said, I don't hold to a two mind view. So that, those are a couple of, of examples. Right. And he may actually hold to a, to a two mind view. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of, uh, Chalcedonian orthodoxy. So, but, but, uh, but besides that, so th that's a good example though, right? Because, um, so, and, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of guessing because I didn't watch the other debate. So I don't know what the other debate 
was. So like it, it and, and this, this, by the way, is one of my, one of my criticisms of, of, of both of your performances. It, and I, and I told this to Chris, it was like, you, you both kind of brought up a bunch of things from other debates and other videos that meant that if the people watching this debate hadn't seen those things, we didn't know what you guys were talking about. So I kind of, it happened on both sides. Uh, and, and I was like, so, you know, I, I mean, it was, it was hard to kind of track that way. You know, he brought up things that were on your website and I was like, well, I mean, a bunch of us hadn't, hadn't read your website. I don't know what's on your website. I'd rather you address what was in the opening statement. You had brought up his, his other debate. And I was like, well, I hadn't seen that debate. So he's defending comments he made in another debate in another context. I, you know, I, there's not much to do with that. But in in the case of of, uh, of your debate, right? So so what what happens? I think is is there's this there's this assertion from the open theist side that God God has to be uh, God has to experience this temporal succession because of and there's multiple reasons. There's lots. There's several arguments that are given. And Chris can just say, well, I mean, in principle that's not necessarily the case, right? Because we can think of this other view, this two timetable view, where maybe God has this, this other type of, this other type of tense, but it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's tense in our time, right? Right. Because he can point to that because that's a really clear um, defeater for the principle. He doesn't need to then go, he doesn't need to defend his view, which might not be as clear of a defeater, even though he still thinks it's a defeater. Right. He can go to the clearer to simply show you haven't you haven't met the burden to defend that that premise is that that, that principle is true, right? So so the a common example that, that I can think of is, um, uh, I don't hold to libertarian freedom, right? No surprise. Anyone watching this, I know you don't know that, right? You know that, right? I can appeal to Planninga's free will defense to overcome the 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 logical problem of evil right because if plant the only thing that planning needs to show is that there is no formal contradiction between the existence of god and the existence of evil because there may be this mitigating thing this this freedom that would give god morally sufficient reason to allow for the evil that he does right i don't need to think that that's true i only need to think that that's conceptually possible right I'm, I, I've used the free will defense, not the free will theodicy, but the free will defense, because it's just a really, really clear, simple defeater for the logical problem. And my view, a compatibilist view, is much more clunky and complicated, and you have to go into a lot more complex philosophical argumentation. It's a lot more in the weeds. It's a harder defeater to establish, even though I think it's true. That's why I said I'm not... You would have to give me an example of where Chris does this. I would need examples because it may be the case that he's doing it illegitimately, but I don't think it's necessarily the case that he's doing it illegitimately because he because he could be giving what he thinks is a, a simpler defeater by simply saying, well, I mean, even you, with, without even grant, we don't have to get into the, the question of do you agree with my view? It could just be, I mean, surely you can grant this hypothetical, right? Well, if you grant the hypothetical, it defeats your view. It's just a, it's just a simpler hmm. tactic. Does that make sense? Yeah. Personally, I just don't ever want to be known as somebody that is a good debater, yeah. meaning I've got debate skills, debate tactics, debate strategies, et cetera. I, I really just want my my arguments to stand on merit. And, and if they're wrong, then they sh then, then that's fine. Let's let's prove them wrong. Yeah. And, and I would say, like, if if you could give if I could have an example of where Chris does this 
to defend his own position, that would be a problem, right? Because then you're not actually defending your position. You're defending something else. But if he does it kind of on the, on the offensive to defeat another person that is making a principal view, I, I don't really have an issue with that. It's really, really common in, in academic uh, discourse. It, it's, a, it's a really common thing to do, uh, especially in philosophical discourse. So, um, so that aside, the other one, I, I don't mean this. I, I don't mean. I don't mean this to sound prideful. I, I've never had an issue where I've haven't been able to follow what Chris is saying. Mm -hmm. um, so, take it for. I, I just. I just haven't experienced that. Um, however, I know that I've done it, um, and I know that other people have done it. Is sometimes when you're caught off guard by a question, and you're not quite sure how to answer it. <laughs> Sometimes you take a long lead in to kind of start formulating your thoughts and get there. It's, I'm not sure it's a debate strategy. I, you know, I, I you know, and, and we, I, I said this, if, if anyone's watched my, my review of uh, the James White uh, and Tim Stratton uh, debate um, is that sometimes, you know, Stratton did this, right? He, he would kind of meander to get to where he finally wants to answer. And a lot of people are, you know, criticizing them. I'd be like, there's a certain level that until you're on the debate stage, you don't actually know how hard it is to come up with answers on the spot. Right. And sometimes you, you meander and back your way into them. Maybe Chris says that. So I don't, I would have to have examples. I, I don't, I don't know, but that, that could be the case. I don't know if it's a tactic though. Sure. Um, yeah. And maybe it's not, I, I think, so it's interesting, but I, I've been following feedback for, for the, for the debate. And it seems like people who are not open theists, have been saying that Chris quote unquote won the debate. And then people who are open theists are telling me that I quote unquote won the debate. That, that maybe means that neither of us did a really good job, but I think from a content standpoint, um, I feel that it was very strong. Um, Chris said something very strange and interesting toward the end of the debate. It was so late. I don't even know if you caught it or if a lot of people caught it. He actually encouraged people to not watch my debates other than my debate with you. And I immediately was like, wow, if, if I heard that, like if I wasn't involved, I would be like, well, now I really want to go listen to those. So anyway, I, 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 I took that. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Keep going. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was gonna say, I took that as a, as actually he was praising you. I, I took that as a compliment for you because I, if you remember, I think he was saying, and I agree with him, right? So I, and this is this is why I was like, you know, Will, like, I'm happy to have Will on the show. There are some open theists where I'm like, there's, you're not going to step foot in in my, you know, if we can call this a studio, whatever this is, um, because I just, I just think you're a jerk, not you, but these other ones, right? And I think Chris was saying, look, these other debates, they treated Will terribly, right? Like, I wouldn't go look at those as good examples of a debate between, you know, a, a, a compatibilist and an open theist. Right. So I, I took it as he was saying, not don't go watch them. So you don't hear from Will. I took it as don't go watch them because they're just, they're not, they're not useful examples of a productive debate. They're just, mm -hmm. and I, and I, and I, I've seen some of those. And during that, I was nodding my head, but you know, the, the, the one where the, without saying names, the, the debate where they basically were telling you that, you know, pat on that, they're there, like, you just need to go study like so condescending, like through most of the debate, like, that's not a productive debate. I mean, I, I you, you know, I, I actually, you deserve a, a pat on the back, not a pat on the head for how calm you stayed through that. Like that was, 
awful and painful. It's so cringeworthy to watch. I agree with Chris on that. Um, and so I, I took that that was kind of why he was mm -hmm. like, don't go watch it. They're just. Yeah, I, I, I want people to watch it for at the very least the content that I bring to the table. And I think that the content that I brought, especially in my opening statement with Chris Date, was pretty solid. So uh, did you watch my, my uh, the, where I had Chris on? Did you watch that? I did. So I'll say it again here. Um, so actually out of the opening statements, e even like coming out of the opening statements, even though I disagree with you, I think you both were pretty neck and neck, right? So if I was doing classic debate scoring, going into the cross-examination, you both were actually right about par. I think your presentation was very, very clear. I think you made you you had you had uh, you had very clear succession of thought. You had developed your argumentation from from clearly from point A to point B to point C. It wasn't all over the place. It was concise. It was it, you know I I actually think you had a, a a very good, even though I disagree with your content uh, or the truth value of your content, I think you probably had about as good of an opening statement as an open theist could have. Um, and I think that, that Chris had a very good opening statement as well. Um, so I, going out, going to the cross examination, I was like, oh, this is going to be a good debate. I'm looking forward to it for me. The, the reason why, and I, and I told him, I don't think he did well either. The reason why I think, uh, neither of you did well. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I think Chris won, although I don't think Chris, I think Chris clearly won, but I don't think it was like a commanding victory where, you know, where he just demolished you, wiped the floor with you, is simply because outside on your cross examination, and I'm and I'm telling you this as a as a recommendation for future debates as, as well. Outside of your initial salvo of questions, which I think were relevant, because hermeneutics is entirely like it's at the core of our disagreement is is hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, it was really hard to follow your cross examination. Um, because the questions, and, and we can talk about examples, the question either begged the question or they were questions, and, and I'll tell you why, they were questions about his psychology, not about actually the topic, or they became irrelevant because they were about, I, I had a hard time seeing the connection between what the point was to what the topic was until you got into the question about... The, the hardest question, the one he had the most trouble answering, and I, he clearly had trouble answering. I told him this. He had trouble answering, was about, uh, and now, now, I'm, now I'm forgetting the exact question, but it was about God's relationship to the incarnation and change. It was towards the very end, I think, of your second cross-examination. Mm -hmm. That was the only time where he really struggled. And it was the only, it, it, outside of the hermeneutics section, it was the only one that was kind of relevant because it was about it was about uh it kind of related to if god can change um but that's kind of a sub point of a sub point how it relates to, to open theism the reason why i think chris won is because i think for the most part although some of I, like i didn't understand the whole point about what was on your website and what was not on your, I, I couldn't track i didn't follow that whole line of questioning besides that his questions were on topic i don't think his questions were necessarily defeating to your view um, that, that's why I said, I don't think it was the normal, normally Chris State is very incisive and gets to the core. That's why he's such a strong debater. And that's why I think this wasn't as strong for him, but at least all of his questions with the exception of that one section were all on topic. Mm -hmm. Whereas I thought yours weren't, that's really the only reason, honestly, why I think you lost the debate. 
Mm. Um, that's it, right? And it's it's not because I agree with Chris or disagree with you, although I do. It just it comes down to that that fundamental cross examination uh, skill that that I think. Um, yeah. Now every debate I do, I number one, I try to learn from it and and yeah. get better. But I but I also do something <clears throat> which it, which is I try to do something new in every debate. And I did something new for this debate, but it was mostly in the prep. And I, I haven't even really mentioned this. I put together a team of four people and myself was number five. And mm -hmm. so the, the team was, was Brian, Zach, Michael, and Dominic. And I said, hey, guys, let's try to read through the entire Bible. And let's, let's try to uh, make a list. Um, of every verse that shows God acquiring new information, obtaining information. Because I said, we, we've got our two or three verses that we always use, but I'm sure there's more. Mm -hmm. And so we all split up the Bible. We took different books. We actually were not able to read through the entire Bible. We tried. We made it through 70% of the Bible. So we made it to somewhere around the beginning of Ezekiel. And uh, when we had to stop because the debate, the, the debate yeah. was ready to go, we, we were at 654 verses where God is obtaining new information. And so I was like, wow, this is powerful. So I want to make this kind of my main argument. And I think what you said is accurate, that, that, that this comes down to a hermeneutic, hermeneutic issue. But uh, I think just at the beginning, like just, just at, at its face, and again, we have to look deeper, but I think just right at the beginning, high level, open theism does best represent the biblical data. And I think what you and Chris and anybody else who disagrees with open theists are going to have to do is you're going to have to make a strong argument that these hundreds of verses don't mean what they say. And I think that is going to be a difficult task. Yeah, so I don't think it's actually that difficult. I mean, here's, here's why. Right. So it, sometimes I think it now. And, and by the way, you'll, you'll, well, people will realize that when I, when I'm not scripted and prepared for a debate and I'm off the cuff, I sometimes ramble. That's why I can sympathize with Chris. Maybe if he has to lead into an answer, you know, I'm trying to form this on the, off the cuff. The, the reason why is by analogy. Okay. So, so follow me, follow with me for a second. And you, I, and you don't, I know you don't agree with me on these types of readings either but i think you can kind of sympathetically follow the analogy and that is when when people who hold to like a libertarian view of freedom want to say oh well, the bible the bible teaches libertarian freedom because look at all these verses where people choose things right it's a very common tactic the compatibilist looks at it and says well no 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 because given compatibilism we choose things, right? It's just, it's just, you, you, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not contrary to compatibilism for people to make choices and decisions, right? So just pointing to a verse that shows someone choose things isn't decisive to show that libertarian freedom is what's taught in the scripture and compatibilism isn't what's taught in the scripture, right? Um, you would actually need some independent reason that isn't begging the question for why these these choices have to be libertarian now you may make some other argument that maybe on compatibilism because it's deterministic those aren't genuine choices right but but now you're 
Now you have to give this other independent reason to think that that's the case. You can't just, it's not just a flat appeal to scripture, right? There, you, you, you have to defend your assumptions that you're bringing to those of scripture. And by the way, I don't think it's necessarily bad to bring assumptions to scripture. We all, we all, we all do it to a certain degree. We all have to read within a context, right? So I, I, I don't Yeah, know. but I think we should try to bring as little as possible. We should try to bring as many unwarranted that are that, as possible. I would agree with you on that, right? We should we should try to to bring. Well, let me let me just say one quick thing. I, I think one of the things we should not bring to scripture is that it's impossible for God to obtain new information. Well, so here here's the here's let me let me now by analogy go back to the other one, right? Every time you point to to the, the ones who are saying, oh well, we we have all these passages where God obtains new information, right? Given given a, a classic historic Orthodox Christian understanding of, of the scriptures, where God is entirely transcendent and language about God is analogical, right? We would expect these these types of verses, right? We we, we would expect in the same way, and 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 you and, and you understand some of the exceptions, right? There are lots of verses where you think that it says that. But God isn't obtaining new information, right? So, you know, the prime example is the garden, right? Where you, th you think God isn't obtaining new information. It's, it's, it's pedagogically didactic. It's teaching something, right? But it's not necessarily that God doesn't know presently where Adam and Eve are, right? I think that we can go through all kinds of examples where that's the case, right? But, it, but it's not, it's, it wouldn't be fair for someone to come to you and say, well, Will, you're just saying that the Bible doesn't mean what the Bible says, but that's, that's not a fair retort to your reading of Genesis because you have reason to think, well, God knows all present realities, right? God knows where Adam is. It's not like God is like literally scratching his head and doesn't know where Adam is, right? So he's not learning, even though it seems like the language could be interpreted that way. So, so yeah, so I got to push back a little bit. Uh, th there's a guy named uh, Guillaume Blanchett on Facebook, and he's really a great guy. He's really smart. I like interacting with him. He uses this example with me all the time. And so I've started to push back because I don't think it's valid. A question, meaning someone asking a question in this context, specifically God asking a question, mm -hmm. a question does not imply that the person asking the question is looking to obtain information. So I don't think that's a good argument against me. And I'll give you an example. What percentage of questions that teachers ask are because they're trying to acquire informa new information and it's almost zero. So I, I don't think that's a good example. Well, I can push back on your pushback, right? Is, is that's somewhat of a, that's somewhat of a special pleading out, right? So you're, so you're saying, well, I have this, and the reason why is because you're saying, I have this other reason why I read the Bible so that it doesn't, it, you have to remember, you're, you're talking to some, what I'm saying is you're, if you're talking to someone who's saying, well, Will, why aren't you reading the Bible for what it actually, what it clearly says, i.e. what they think that it clearly says. And you're gonna say, well, because I have reason to, I, I have reasons to think that it, that it it's not that's not how we should read it right namely you know questions are are, are not always that way right Na namely we have all these other examples where that's necessarily that way right all i'm saying is that it's 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 not a fair rhetoric for the open theist to say well uh 
you know, you, you, you non-open theists, right? Because this isn't a Calvinist re reformed. This is just a classic classical theist, you know, historic Christian thing that disagrees with you is, is to say, well, you know, you all, why don't you read the Bible for, you know, are, are you saying the Bible doesn't mean what it clearly says? Right. And we're going to say, no, we just don't agree with you that that's what it clearly says. Right. Are, I mean, are you seeing that again, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm saying, yeah. I'm saying as a, as a, as a, as an objection, it's not, it's not a charitable way to, to, to object to the viewpoint that's opposing of yours. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is, is that there's a difference between God saying something like this, which he didn't say. There's a difference between God saying, I don't know where Adam is and Adam, where are you? That the question, Adam, where are you? Does not imply that God doesn't know where he is. That's my only point. Well, let's, I mean, I can when, give, when, I, a, when a teacher says, when a teacher says, Johnny, who won World War Two, the teacher knows the answer. So I, I do believe that that in that moment in the garden, that that is a teaching moment. It's similar to us asking our kids, what did you do, even though you already know what they did, but you want to see if they have the, the maturity to admit what they did and to tell you. OK, so let, let me give another example then. Okay. And by the way, Seamus, uh, yeah. if I'm pronouncing that right, Foster in the comments asked for a verse example of God obtaining new information. He said one or two, if you could, can I give a couple real quick? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Great. Uh, okay. So the first one I'll give is uh, Deuteronomy eight two, and you shall remember that the Lord, your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And then Psalm 14, two, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. And so my, again, maybe you guys have a good answer for this, but I think if somebody's just reading the Bible, they, they finished Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they understand the whole story of the Exodus, they get to Deuteronomy 8 too. They read this verse where God's, where it says just at face value that God's obtaining new information. I don't know what would cause them to stop and say, wait a minute, I don't think it means that other than the fact that they disagree. Yeah. So, okay. Let me, let me give, uh, let me give a couple, couple examples. So you, your first one was Deuteronomy 8, 2. What was the other one? Psalm, uh, Psalm 14, 2. So let me, let me, let me address these ones specifically. Um, because this came up in our debate too, um, and then and then we can go back because I I, I want I still want to bring up the verse that I was thinking of uh, when we were talking about Genesis, right? So do and I'm trying to remember the Bible verse now. Um, I, I mean, do you believe that God knows the the heart of every man alive? Uh, present heart, yes. Sure, pre pre presently, right? So. Yeah. I, I, I'm not trying to get you to commit to something that you haven't already committed to publicly. I just want to see if you've changed your view at all. Let me let me also add one piece, though, because I think it's super helpful. And, and by the way, I think one of the keys to Christianity and theology, which I think everybody's failing in, including myself, is trying our very hardest to truly understand what people who disagree with us believe and why. Right. 
Um, so this will be good. This will at least help you and others understand what I believe. So I, I believe that God knows present hearts. That doesn't mean he knows future hearts okay. uh, because hearts can change. And, and uh, again, open theism denies that, that the future is settled and therefore known by God. And two, uh, knowing our hearts doesn't mean that God knows what we would do in a situation that we've never been faced with. Right. So that, that's, my full, that's my full answer. Which is totally fair, right? And 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 I and I appreciate that because I think that for an internal critique, right? Because what I'm about to, and I'll lay my cards on the table, I'm going to run an internal critique. That is, if your view is true, and this is what Chris was trying to do in his opening statement. If your view is true, then it contradicts itself on other points, and so therefore it can't be true, right? It's, it's called the reductio ad absurdum type of argumentation, right? So, so, so I, I'm totally fine with you making those caveats. Right. And I understand yeah. I'm not I'm not trying to say, oh, well, if you're an open theist, clearly you think that God knows future hearts because well, open theists don't think that. Right. That'd be outside mm -hmm. of what your profession would be. That would be a an invalid internal critique. Right. So but your view is that that God knows the state of the condition of the 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 intentions of every single heart present and past. Right. Because those are settled facts. Right. The, and, and the intention, the intentionality is just the, um, you know, maybe, maybe you want to, I think you would grant that, but maybe let's, let's just lay all the cards on the table and find out. Right. So the, I take it that the intention of the heart is, um, what I presently intend to do. It doesn't guarantee on the, I, I think on the open theist view, you could grant that, but it doesn't entail that I will necessarily do that. Maybe I'll change my mind in the, in the moment. Right. So, so, you know, I, I may have the moment right now in my heart that I, I intend that I would jump in front of a bullet to save my kids. Maybe in the moment I become an extreme coward and I don't do that. Right. But God knows presently that the intention of my heart would be to do that. Right. Right. Can you grant that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as a general principle, yes. If we get to a specific example and I'm like, Ooh, that's tough. Then may, I might have to, to push back a little bit, but yeah, it's a, prov it's a provisional acceptance. I can't. I, okay. So here, here's, uh, here's the, the, the example of what here's, a, okay. Let me give, I'll go to your verses specifically, but let me give a good, a good example of why I'm going to take exception to your, your, the view that you gave. I can put it, I, I don't know a way to share this. So I'm going to put it in the notes and then put the comment, right? So Psalm mm. 26, two says, examine me O Lord and try me, test my mind and my heart. Right. Well, couldn't someone come to you and say, okay, but will, if God already knows, I, I think this is a Psalm of David. God already knows David's heart. Right. What? The, the, the scripture is clearly David is saying, God examine me so that you, you, you test and know my mind and my heart. Right. I'm not trying to get you to commit to anything on this view. Uh, what, what I'm trying to remember, this is, this is all set in the, in the, in the context of, I'm, I'm trying to give an answer to the, well, there's hundreds of thousands of verses that, that show God learning your information. Right. And I'm saying, look, we have passages like this where even if we want to take it in the open theist way, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to support the open theist way, right? Because this, uh, someone could come to you. That's kind of a, even, even further than an open theist and say, but, but will you say that God knows all the present heart, all the present hearts. Mm -hmm. 
David clearly doesn't seem that God knows his heart presently. So don't you, why, why don't you believe what the Bible clearly says? So I think that what I told you, my caveat uh, applies here, which is, okay. which is D David, David is saying here, try me and test me. And so there's a difference between, what's a good analogy? There's a difference between doing something very well in practice and doing it in a game. Actually, here's a really good example. This is just an interesting side note. This past weekend, I took a free diving course and I actually tore my trachea and I was spitting blood. Yeah. It, was, it sounds worse than it is. But what's interesting is that they, they started. <laughs> yeah, it, we, we started in the pool. And I was just rocking it in the pool, but then the pool was to prep you for the ocean. Yeah. And things went very different in the ocean. The, the water's moving, it's deeper. There's just a lot mentally going on. And so I, I could take the verse that you just said, Psalm 26 too, where David is saying like, you know, you know my heart, but put me into a situation and, and try me and, and test me and you'll see how I will perform in that situation. I think what's interesting, though, is <clears throat> it seems that the outcome, though, is to prove the condition of his current condition of his heart. Right. So so Im imagine I said, OK, uh, you know, put me to a driving test. Right. Why would you put me to a driving test to know my current skill level? Right. To, mm -hmm. to know the condition of my current skills. Right. But if God already knows the condition of his current skills, the driving test just becomes superfluous, right? It's just going to prove, it, it seems that David's saying is the test proves the state of my heart, but God already knows the state of his heart according to open theism. I mean, I, not just according to open theism, I think that's just, I think all biblical views are going to say that God know, knows the current state, right? But the, why do the test if God already knows the current condition, right? Yeah. And again, I, I see this as the purpose of a test is to see what somebody would do when they're actually put into the situation. Like, for example, um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I would, you know, rise up and, and, and do all of these, you know, crazy things if, you know, I, I needed to protect friends or family fr from a situation where, you know, maybe somebody starts to attack them or somebody starts to, you know, pulls out a gun or whatever. I, I could think all of that and say all of that, but I really don't know what I would do until I'm actually in the situation and it's real. And, and I might actually have a different reaction in the real situation. So I think that that is, is, is a good, but wouldn't uh, that, so, so do you think David is asking so that David will know the condition of his heart or that God will know the condition of his heart? Uh, using, using that scripture plus other scripture from David, I think David definitely is saying, uh, for God to know. Okay. But then, but then that, that, that goes back to my point though, where it, the assumption of the text seems to be that the test will demonstrate the condition of the heart, right? The test isn't, it's not creating a new condition of the heart. It's demonstrating the current condition of his heart. Well, like, as I, as I, sure said, know that. as I said in the beginning, that God doesn't know future hearts. <laughs> and so the test hasn't right. happened yet. And so God doesn't 
necessarily know the result of that test. Like for example, Psalm 17, three, David says to God, you have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. Okay. But, but the text doesn't say test my future mind and my future heart. Right. Well, it kind of does because he's asking God to do it. So that, that implies God in this instance has not done it. And again, you know, we, we've got, you know, a situation with David where he might have thought, David might have thought at one point, I'll never commit adultery. But then when he was put in a situation where there was temptation right in front of him with Bathsheba, he, he fell. But doesn't God know the condition of his heart right at the moment of temptation that his heart is of such that it would fall? Right. So, so the way that's that I think the test, though, that, that's the middle of the test. Like, like, why do we test gold, for example, for, for, for pureness? Is it to find uh, out what the gold will be like or what the gold is like? What the gold is like at that present moment. Right. So, so the, the test is just validating what's already objectively present, right? Sure. So the, the, the test isn't demonstrating a future state. It's, it's, it's demonstrating what is already objectively true already, right? Yeah, well, the, the, the test is not like a single moment in time. A test takes time. And so a test where, you know, somebody's put into a situation where they have temptation put in front of them that they've never had put in front of them, you see afterward uh, if they, if they failed the test or if they passed the test. Okay, uh, let's move on. This was yours. So this this is Deuter Deuteronomy eight two, right? And you shall remember all the way in uh, all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these forty years in order to humble you, putting you to the test to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So, so th th this I think is a very is very significant open theist proof text. And again, as I mentioned, I don't know. What, and again, there might be a reason that I don't know of, but I don't know why somebody who's reading through the Bible, this is right at the beginning, it's in the Pentateuch, would come to this verse and say, ah, 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 that can't mean that without without literally because they, they disagree a priori. Yeah, so, well, I'll make a comment on that because, again, I, I don't think anyone's saying, ah, 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 that the, the Bible doesn't mean what it says, right? Again, that's just, I don't think that's a charitable interaction with other views. I think it's we just don't think that that's what the plain meaning is, right? So, so the here again, the if we read it in the way that that the open theist wants us to, it seems that the test is past validating, right? The the the, the I'm putting you to the test to know what was in your hearts. No, no, no. That that the past tense here is because Moses is talking about the past. Okay. He's, he's not saying that, that when the test happened, it was for the past. Okay, so, <laughs> but the test was there, right? The, the test was, why was the test there? Was it to know what was in their hearts? It, well, we have to finish it. Yes, it was to know what was in their heart, specifically whether they would keep his commandments or not. Okay, so the, the test is proving what was already objectively a fact about their heart. Well, no, because when it started, there was no, there really was no law yet. 
So okay. God, God, in, in my view, God did not know once he gave the law whether they would keep the commandments or not. And according to this verse, again, I, I'm interpreting it one way, but I think that that's the, the right way to interpret it. And I do think that was what Moses intended to write, was that God obtained new information through this years-long test, through the, through the wilderness. I'm just curious. I mean, obviously, I disagree with you, but how do you then handle later in Deuteronomy where God where God says basically says, and when you fail, I'm going to carry you off, but don't worry, I'm going to spare a remnant, and I'm going to bring you all back, right? He he seems to very clearly know that they're not going to keep his law. Well, yeah, so he's talking about future generations there. But how and does he so, know future generations won't keep his law? Well, my argument there is, number one, I think if they if they ended up keeping his law and surprising him, he would be glad. And number two, he, I, I believe throughout the history of mankind, through situations like this, God is becoming more familiar with how man acts. Okay. But it seems, and, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems like what you're saying is, even though God perfectly knows the, the present state of the hearts of the Israelites, he doesn't know if those Israelites are going to obey or not. But somehow he knows that future Israelites, who he doesn't know the hearts of, he knows that they're not going to obey, even though he doesn't know their hearts. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, the, the knowledge is different, right? So when God talks about men that exist and, and the knowledge of them, that's one thing. When he talks about the knowledge of people that don't exist in the open theist view, that's different. Um, and again, like here's an example, you know, God sent men uh, to go spy the, the promised land. And that was a new situation, right? They, uh, it's, it's the first time that they're, they're seeing these, you know, st the strong people there and all but two of them were like, we can't, we can't do this. O only Joshua and Caleb passed that test. Yeah. I don't think that shows that God didn't know. Right? So, uh, so, okay. But I, let me give, let me give one more example. And this is, you know, so I, I think that my, my, my point merely is that even on the verses that you give, I don't think it's as entirely clear as you think that it is. Um, and, and one of the examples I give, and this, this came up in our debate, this came up in the debate with Chris, this comes up commonly, right? So this shouldn't be a surprise, uh, is, is in Genesis 18. Hmm. Uh, right, where, where it says, the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceeding the grave. I will go down and see whether they have done entirely as the outcry, which has come to me, has come to me, indicates, and if not, I will know. Right? Yeah, another, Here's another. a verse, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, here's a verse where it seems to indicate, it seems to say, God's learning something new. Mm -hmm. Right? But what, what it's saying he knows is the past, Right. So so it's what, what it's saying is that I'll go down and see whether they have done entirely. Right. If if what they've done match in the past matches the outcry that has come up to me also in the past, because the out, he's, he's coming in the narrative, he's coming in response to this outcry. And he's saying, look, I, I'm going to come down and find out if what they have done already really is what supports the outcry to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So so. And a lot of time, you know, this this comes up in these debates a lot because we're going to come and say, okay, Mr. Open Theist, 
according to your own hermeneutic, right? Which, which again, we, we disagree with kind of the, the, the hyper-literalism of it. But according to your own hermeneutic, this is an example of God learning new information. But the thing that he's learning grammatically, I mean, you can't, it's unavoidable, mm -hmm. is the past, mm -hmm. right? So, and again, the, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to bring this up to press and say, therefore, open theism is true, although I think it's a good example. But the, I'm, I'm bringing this up. Remember, this is all in that context of how do you respond to, we have 600 verses that all seem to show that, Bible, that, that God learns new things. Why do you not read it as God actually learning new things? Right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to come to this example and say, well, here's an example. It's not a question, right? It's a past thing, which you already ostensibly agree God knows perfectly. And yet God's saying that he learns it, right? Mm -hmm. So why, 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 why are you, you know, to use your phrase, why are you saying that the Bible doesn't mean what the Bible says? Right. Okay. So lot to unpack here. Uh, first off, I, I need to just make one quick comment to Shamez Foster. Uh, and, and Jordan Thornburg just said the same thing, but, but Shamez Deuteronomy 8.2 says that it was God that was learning the new information. Okay. Genesis 18. So number one, I, I, I met, I messed up in my debate with Chris and I, I should have held him accountable for this, but I think that you guys are misunderstanding, uh, my hermeneutic. I don't want to speak for all open theists. Um, we do not have a hyper-literal hermeneutic. We don't have a woodenly literal hermeneutic. That, that is completely false. And it's either a misunderstanding or a straw man. So before I move on, do you want to respond to that? Yeah, I don't think it is. So, and, and at least, okay, let me, let me, let me back up. In, in, in all of our inter interactions and in all of my interactions with open theists, um, well, let me, let me, let me, let me caveat because, and I, and I, I'm aware how, how, I'm aware how this will come across. I don't intend this to be rude. I think that academic open theism and, and online open theism are kind of two different species. And I don't typically find people like Alan Rhoda, um, or, you know, and, and, and others making the same type of exegetical errors that I see from people like yourself and McGrew and Fisher and, and, and some, so I, so let me, let me just say, I'm not sure this criticism is valid of all open theists. Okay. I don't mean that to be, I'm, I understand how that sounds. I, but I'm not, I'm not intending it to be just, okay. If I'm making an exegetical error, just point it out and yeah, I can so, learn. So what I typically find is that it is a type of literal hermeneutic. I, I, I typically find the type of hermeneutics that's employed is very similar to what I get from King James onlyists and hyper dispensation, you know, very, very hyper classical dispensationalists, which is intentionally a, a literalistic hermeneutic. Now that doesn't mean what that doesn't mean is that you all have no category for symbolic language, right? Or that you have no category of apocalypse. You have no category of symbol, right? That's not what it means. What it does mean typically is that the assumption is literal until proven otherwise, right? And so if the language is about God or whatever it is, um, well, God learned something. Well, the assumption is that it's literal unless proven otherwise, 
right? So the so so that that's why you, that's why I think what you said originally, where you said, well, look, you have to give me a reason why you understand language about God and, and uh, you know analogically rather than literally, right? Because you're you just have this literal reading of these passages as as an a priori assumption in your hermeneutic that the rest of Christendom doesn't have. So all I'm saying is that these verses like Deuteronomy 8.2, Psalm 14.2, Genesis 8, all I'm saying is that I see these as meaning what they say. And I, my hermeneutic, because I do think that, I, that my hermeneutic is being straw manned, my hermeneutic is the historical grammatical method. And that hermeneutic by definition is a literal hermeneutic. And I, and, and what I mean by that is that I believe the authorial intent, meaning what the author intended is for this to be literal. So if the, a literal hermeneutic doesn't mean everything's literal, a literal hermeneutic means if an, a biblical author was literally intending to use an analogy, then it's an analogy. But if the biblical author was intending to, to use something literally as just literal, then it's literal. Yeah. So, so that I don't agree. I don't disagree with, right? That's called the census literalis, right? It's, it's, it's not the literal sense. It's the literary sense. It's the, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the authorial intent of the passage. I, again, I'm not trying to straw man you. I, if I'm wrong, then, then, you know, I'm, I please, you know, I, I'm not trying to, right? I, I guess, I guess I'm curious, right? Because in your, in your, in your, and I'm going to take this down. So we're not, you know, continue to look at this, this verse. Ah, how do I find it? It's way back up there. Um, okay, so in your debate with 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 Chris, you pressed him on the analogy of faith, mm -hmm. right? Do you affirm the analogy of faith or no? Um, the analogy of faith seems to me to be defined differently by people, and it also seems to me to be something that's so loose that it's very difficult to ascertain. So I don't really know. Um, I, I think it would be more fruitful for you to explain what you think the analogy of faith is. And I could tell you if I agree with that or not. Well, the, the analogy of faith, it, I mean, I, I haven't, I've only seen one version of it. I haven't seen different versions of it. The, the analogy of faith is just the clear interprets the, the less clear, right? So um, didactic passages interpret narrative passages. Um, you know, didactic passages interpret poetic passages, right? We don't, we don't take what we learn in the Psalms uh, and use that as a filter to understand Romans. It doesn't mean that we can't draw principles. It doesn't mean that we can't understand. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that it's, it does, it's not informative of our theology. It's just if you have two statements and one of them is in a, in a didactic passage, and one of them is in a in a narrative passage, and it could be read in multiple different ways. You read it in the way that's consistent with the more clear didactic passage, hmm. right? Um, it, it it's 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 not a hard principle. It's a principle of primacy in interpretation that 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 the clear takes primacy in inter interpreting other passages. Okay, here here are my issues. Uh, who, who's determining what is clear and unclear? That's my first issue. And, and my second issue is yeah. if the passages that I'm bringing up, such as Deuteronomy 8.2, Psalm 14.2, etc., if someone's going to tell me that those are not clear, what makes them not clear? 
Yeah. So, so a couple, a couple, I mean, it's a valid, it's a valid question, right? So, um, although it's somewhat like the Roman Catholic who says, well, dear Protestant, who decides what the canon is on your view? Um, there, there is a certain level when we say, okay, I, it's like the problem of a heap. Uh, even if I can't give a specific example of, uh, when a heap becomes a heap, we all can kind of look at a paradigmatic example of a heap and know it's a heap, right? So, uh, I, I think we all we all have pretty clear examples that that Romans is more didactic and more clear than Psalms, right? Um, we 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 can understand that uh, you know Je Jesus's uh, didactic statements and, and direct teaching are are more clear than his parables, right? So mm -hmm. there 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 are some clear examples. Now there may be some some gray examples where you say, okay, you know we have this passage, we have two passages in the Psalms that seem to have this, you know which one takes primacy it seems to be the one that takes the least amount of ad hoc maneuvers right um so but granted that's a gray area right mm -hmm. um but if but but if we have exam if we, if we have clear if we have clear teaching or or we have or we have lots of examples for example where in narrative the statements about god seem to be phenomenological they seem to be written from our vantage point right we have we have lots we have lots of verses like that so when you come to an example of okay we have we, we have all these examples but you come to one where it's like okay god learned something mm -hmm. okay but you have all these other examples that clearly say god is perfect in knowledge that god is unchanging that god is you know that god is the creator of all things that god sustains all things he upholds all things that in him we live and live and move and have our being right you have all these i, I know you're shaking your head you just what I'm saying is we have all these, we have all these examples. So when you come to a narrative, the, the, it seems the clearer way to interpret it is, okay, well, it's phenomenological, right? It's, it's, it, it's interpreting the same way that I would tell my kids. Um, well, if you, if you don't clean up after yourselves, we're not going to go to Disneyland. I, I, I could entirely be planning on going to Disneyland regardless. And they they think that they have to clean up their toys to do that, but I know I've already paid thousands of dollars to go. There's no way we're not going, right? They could perceive it as a change in my action or a threat to do something else, but really that's just a phenomenological. That's how they're perceiving it from their end, mm -hmm. right? We have we have all these ways that we understand that type of language, phenomenological language, and we have all these clear examples where where God says, you know, I, you know, I, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end. I, you know, I inhabit eternity, right? We have all these other very clear statements that seem to be controlling statements. Again, you might not agree with it, but my point is, my only point is, is that it's not as clear cut as look at all these verses that say that God learns new information, so therefore you're, you're God learns new information, and and you have to say why. You know, you're 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 saying that the scripture doesn't mean what the scripture says, right? Well, the response just says, well, we just don't think that's what the scripture. I, I just don't grant the premise that that's what the scripture says in the first place. Okay, so there was a lot there. Yeah. Um, the, the reason I was shaking my head is the, the first thing you said is that the Bible says that God is perfect in knowledge. I don't think that that's in the Bible. I could be wrong. Um, uh, I, I would also disagree with what being perfect in knowledge means um uh also you know if there was if there if there was how about this uh, I, I do think that that open theism at least gets off the line first in saying okay we believe that god 
obtains new information. We believe that God acquires new information. And the reason we think that is because we've got verses from Genesis to Revelation that say that it's not just one or two, it's hundreds of them. Okay, great. We're off the line first. We, we've started the discussion. Now we need to look at these verses and say, okay, do they actually mean what they say? And that's where the open theist says, like me, like, I do think they mean what they say. Now, if there was a verse that says God cannot obtain new information, God does not acquire new information, I think you guys would have a leg to stand on, and that would make a really good debate of trying to figure out and reconcile that. But I don't even think we have that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we did. So it, it, it uh, I'm trying to find it. There, there is a verse in Proverbs that says God is God is uh, God knows all things. He's perfect knowledge. There's uh, there's there's First John where it says that that He knows all things. Um, there's First Samuel where it says I'm not a man that I should lie or change my mind, right, or, or have a change of mind. Um, and and, oh. and it, see, and th and this is where again, this is. I, I'm happy to bring this up because I, I think it pushes you to bite the bullet on something. Mm -hmm that I think is shocking for most people. I, I know you're comfortable with it, but I think it's shocking for most people. And it, it, it seems to draw, you know, it says, well, I'm not a man that I don't do these two things. I don't lie and I don't change my mind, mm -hmm. right? Your views, again, I can come to you and say, well, your view seems to say that this verse doesn't mean what it says because you, you think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you think God can lie and can change his mind. Even though the verse expressly, didactically, clearly says God is not a man, the reason why he can't change his mind and he can't lie is because he's not a man. Okay, right? so but then the intention is if he can lie and he can't change his mind, then he is like a man. So let's talk about this. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I can't quote you on this. Something that you will see if you follow enough of what I do and what people see if they follow enough of what I do. I love quoting people. The reason I love quoting people is the one thing I never want to be accused of is misquoting somebody or misrepresenting somebody. So I, I will either say, here's a direct quote, and I will actually write it down and type it as I'm hearing somebody say it from a video, or I will say, you know, this is what I heard. So I can't quote you on this, but I can say that I think it's possible that the arguments that you're using right now and that the art and, and uh, that other Calvinists use that you guys actually don't do this when you're talking about what you believe. Right. So for example, you're talking about uh, didactic being, being more uh, clear than narratives. Mm -hmm. you're, you're talking about how, you know, Psalms and Proverbs are poetry. Calvinists quote Psalms and Proverbs for their theology to prove their theology mm -hmm. a ton. Like, for example, you just were looking for a verse in Proverbs um, to, to show me something. Uh, let's go to what you just mentioned, Numbers 23, 19. So I want to make sure I understand you because I think it's possible that I don't. Are you saying that Numbers 23, 19 is not a narrative and it's didactic? No, no, no. So, okay. And, and let me back up. This, this is why I said already, e even when I was talking about the, the, the analogy of faith, I said, it's not that we can't get theology from Psalms. Mm -hmm. Right. So, 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 so I, I hope you didn't hear that. I said, you, you can't go to Psalms to support theology, right? That, that, that would just be, that would just be stupid, stupidity on stilts. Right. So that, that's not the claim. The claim is that when you have clear didactic statements, right. And didactic doesn't necessarily mean non-poetic, right. But when you have a clear statement that states a clear principle, 
right? It's not, it's not, and Psalms does this in Proverbs. Well, Proverbs wisdom literature, it sometimes uh, gets a little gray, but the, the, it, it doesn't mean that Psalm won't make a clear statement, right? The issue is, is if the clear statement has alternative readings to it, mm. right? So, um, so for example, um, we're, we, you know, we'll, we'll go, we'll go here to, to, to numbers, right? I'm not saying that numbers because it's narrative, isn't more clear or more didactic in this case, I think it's stating a clear print. It's, it's making a principled statement, mm -hmm. right? I have a hard time understanding how a principled statement can be an, can be a symbolic statement. Right. I, I mm. let me, sorry, one more and then, and then I'll let you respond and, and go to what you want to do in this verse. Right. Be, and this is where I disagree with Christine. Right. Because on, on issues like hell, because it, it seems that in, in, you know, he's going to go to all these passages in Matthew and all this kind of stuff about what destruction means. And it means eternal, you know, I mean, it means annihilation. It can't be else going to It seems that in revelation where it talks about the pit of fire, it's, they go, where they are in agony day and night without rest. Now, because it's in Revelation, a lot of times they say, oh yeah, but that's in Revelation, it's, it's symbolic. And I would say, okay, but symbols have concrete meanings. Symbols are only meaningful if they have a concrete meaning, right? It has to, a symbol represents something concrete behind it. Otherwise it's meaningless, right? I'm not sure what saying day and night with with without rest can mean I, I don't know how that could i don't know how there could be a the concrete concept behind that could be the exact opposite of that right so for me that's a that's a clear statement because it's a principled statement mm -hmm. whereas the other ones that talk about destruction language can be taken in multiple senses Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so we take the one that can really only have one sense, even if it's in apocalyptic literature, it's a principled statement. That one really only seems to have one sense to it. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Chris will probably say that I'm wrong, but it seems to me to only have one. I'm, maybe I can be proven false. And so when we go to these other ones, that one just seems to take primacy because it's a principled statement. Mm -hmm. So when we go to something like this in, 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 uh, in numbers, mm -hmm. right, where we have a clear statement where, where God, God, God's not a human. We all agree God's not a human. And the principle seems to be that because he's not a human, he can't lie and he can't change his mind, whatever those mean, right? Because I know there's disagreement about what Nahan means in, in there, right? So, but that's a, that's in principle saying because he's not a human, he can't do these things. It's, there's not a symbol, right? There's no, there's a, that, that just is the principled statement. So when we go to these narrative examples where, where God appears to be gaining new information or learning new things, we say, okay, but, but God can't change his mind. If he already knows something, he can't change his mind. He can't be wrong, right? Well, um, yeah, so God, God obtaining information and God changing his mind are two different things, just for what it's worth. But I, I think I think we could have a good conversation about Numbers 20 through 19. Yeah. So yeah. let me, do you want to put the verse up? Uh, yeah. All right, so let's, and again, I, I understanding you is super, super important. <laughs> um so again, Numbers 23, 19, I think what you're saying is that there is, are you saying that this is a didactic statement that's being made in the narrative? No, I'm saying it's a principled statement. 
Perfect. Okay, great. So you're saying this is a principled statement that's made in the narrative. Yeah. Okay, great. So let me start here. And by the way, I, I'm really glad that this has been brought up because I've never really had a chance to hash this out with somebody. And I, I think this is good to, to for, give this a, a crack. Um, all right. Number one. Number one is I think this verse really, I think everybody would agree on all sides of the debate that it only means one of two things. It either means God cannot lie and cannot repent, or it means he will not lie and will not repent in this situation. I think everybody agrees it means one of those two. Are we on the same page so far? Uh, I've heard some of your, your fellow uh, open theists take other views, but I agree those are probably the two only respectable exegetical options. So we'll, we'll okay. go. Yes. If, right, if you're happy to say the other ones also aren't respectable, then sure. We'll, we'll, we'll... I can't think of anything else that, that would be respectable. So okay. I do not see, let me, let me just lay my case out real quick. I do not see in this verse that it says God cannot do these things. What I see not only in the verse, but in the story I see that God will not do these things in this particular situation. Now, when I expand this to the rest of scripture, I see contradictory verses. Now, again, we can deal, we, we can easily solve the contradictions, but I see contradictory verses where it does say that God is the son of man, where it does say that God repents. And I would like to call... To, to kind of make a funny uh, uh, word here, I'd like to call your numbers 2319 and raise you uh, Jonah 4.2. And let me explain what I mean. So Jonah 4.2 is also a principled statement uh, in a narrative. Uh, but the reason I'm, I'm calling and raising you is because your verse is a false prophet and Jonah is a true prophet. Now, before I'm taken out of context, I'm not saying that Numbers 2319, because it's being said by a false prophet, is a false statement. I think it's a true statement. Uh, but uh, Jonah actually says that God repents. And so I think that I can solve this, but I'm not sure you necessarily can with your current yeah, What's, the, what's the passage in Jonah? Jonah 4.2 says, uh, so he prayed to the Lord and said, ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country. Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who repents from doing harm. And it's the same Hebrew word, nacham. Right. Okay. Perfect. Love it. This is going to be a really good example. This is going to be like a practical case of, of exegesis in action, right? Following mm -hmm. the analogy of faith. Okay. How should we understand this passage, right? Because there's ambiguity. Maybe there's two different senses to read it. It's not saying God can't lie. It's saying he won't lie in this specific context, right? That's the okay. view you're going to take. Okay. Yep. Can we apply the analogy of faith to this? And you're going to say, yes, I'm going to go to Jonah as an example. And I'm going to say, ah, I'm, I'm going to take that, take your analogy. I'm going to raise you actually another one, right? Two things. First of all, I'm glad you said it. And this isn't what you, I don't think this is what you meant. So I want to be charitable to you. But I am going to say this because a lot, a lot of open, Chris Fisher says this, uh, Drew says this, I've been the provisions perspective guy. I think McGrew has said, maybe McGrew hasn't. I vaguely remember he had, I could be wrong. Don't hold me to it. I think he has, but I could be wrong. So don't hold me that. I know Fisher has, I know Drew has. And that is this idea that, that Balak um, is a false prophet. The relevance of that to this passage is nil. 
because and this is why I, I I say it's 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 good not to proof text. It's good to read context. Because if you read two verses ahead of it in verse 16, it says, Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, right? Um, return to Balak, and this is what you shall speak. Yeah, again, I think it's a true statement. Yeah, so so my, my again, I didn't say that you said, oh, it's a false prophet, so we can't trust it. But I've heard other open theists say expressly. I have two, and I, I push back on them. Yeah, so it, it expressly says that this is the very word of the Lord that he has given him to say. Mm -hmm. So just just to put that for, for the audience that's just listening, if, they, if they've heard of it, it's good. I'm glad you don't say that. But okay, so what do we do? So we now have we now have this passage and it says, okay, <clears throat> we have two options. One reading is that God cannot lie. And so the parallel will be God cannot change his mind. The other reading is God won't lie in the specific context. Mm -hmm. right? Well, do we have clearer passages on this that inform us which reading we should take? And I'm going to say, yes, we do. Right. So we have. Uh, can, I, can I ask a favor? Sure. Can we stick to God changing his mind? No. Okay. And, I'll tell you, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable. Because that's the only thing that's relevant to open theism. But, but here, but the reason why I'm going to say no is because the principle is it gives, it gives two things God can't. It says that you, the principle is he's not a man, so he can't do these two things. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're parallel to each other. So if I can show he can't do one, you would have to give very, 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 very good exegetical reason for why we should split the horns of the two things that says that it gives as examples. Why one he can't do, but one he could do, but he won't do, even though he's not a man, right? They're 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 given as the two things that God can't or won't do. They kind of live or die together, right? And you would have to give very good reason to break them apart. Uh, okay, I think I did already, but that's fine. Okay, so we have in, for example, in First Timothy, or sorry, in Titus one, verse two, uh, leading in Paul bondservant uh, for for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, adunamis in Greek, cannot, no power, unable. It's it's uh, so in the Hebrew you're right in 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 numbers. It could be a subjunctive, I don't think it is, but here we have an example where it's it it's it's not vague at all. It, it's it, in the Greek it's there. There's only one reading of adunamis, right? Unable, no power to, cannot, right? That that's just how it's translated. There's there's no way to translate this as can but wouldn't. That's not what adunamis means, right? So, so we have, so, and, and then, and I'm going to give another one and then, you know, come back to it and then we'll go to, to, to the other, well, then we'll go to Jonah. <clears throat> so in, in, um, uh, in Hebrew six, Uh, 17 and following. Probably going to have to show this in two different ones. In the same way, God desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of his promise the fact that which uh, uh, the fact that his purpose is unchangeable. 
It is impossible for God to lie. take refuge. I would strong encouragement over those. I'm saying, look, reason why we have our show is because of two things. So if God can lie, Hebrews is wrong, right? Because he's He's, he's basing our firm hope on the fact that God is his word is unchangeable and he cannot lie, right? So we have two clear passages in the New Testament that says God, it's not that God just won't lie. It's God cannot lie. It's, it, not only does he not have the power to lie, but it's impossible for God to lie. So when we then take these two clear didactic passages, principles, and go back to numbers and we say, okay, in numbers, we have two. We have two readings. Well, according to the two readings, uh, which uh, which reading do we prefer? Well, according to the analogy of faith, we should read it according to the ones that are in line with the clearer statements, which is that God cannot lie. Okay, uh, I got most of that. Uh, either your connection was bad or mine. Oh, sorry. Um, so I feel like this is going to take us off in too big of a rabbit trail. Um, I don't know Greek very well. Um, I, I've got a I've got a very beginner's knowledge of Greek, and I have had people that claim to be Greek experts tell me that Titus one two uh, that cannot lie is actually not a good translation. But again, I can't defend that. Uh, they, they've told me a better translation would be the unlying God. Um, but that's neither here, nor, neither here nor there. I'm willing to grant what you're saying to keep the conversation moving. Um, the Hebrews passage is interesting because it says, it specifically says that there's two things uh, in which God cannot lie. And so I feel like that's a little bit problematic if, if this is just a general thing about God, why would it say there's two, Im there's two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie? Um, but I think where the problem is going to come is that is you're saying, is you saying that with numbers, if, it, if it's using lie as one example and repent as another, that if it's impossible for God to do one, it has to be impossible for him to do the other. I don't think that's valid. I think that's where the rub is here. So, okay, so um, and again, my position, just so you're clear, my position is because of Jonah 4.2 and because of another 26 passages or so that say God repents, I do believe that God does repent. And so my solution to that quote unquote contradiction is that there are times where God won't repent and there are times that God will. And by the way, the fact that it says God is not a son of man 
the, the New Testament says he's a son of man dozens of times. And so there's a solution to that as well. And the solution to that is he wasn't a son of man yet. Oh, I mean, that, you're going to get into all kinds of uh, Christological problems. At that, I mean, I, I've already critiqued you. I, I don't want to go down the rabbit trail of what I think are some of your Trinitarian problems. That, that's going to okay. be a whole different, different thing. Um, uh, if you really commit, I would rethink the statement you just made just to stay within Christological orthodoxy. So I feel really good about the statement I just made. Okay, we'll put a pin in that one. Uh, maybe All that's right. a, a point for a different a different debate. So, so by by the way, sorry, I, I was remembering the two Greeks wrong. So I, I just looked them up while you're looking. Um, Apsudes is the one that's in Titus one two. So it it is, it is um, un, um, free from falsehood, unlying, uh, unlying. That's fine for for Titus. That's fine. Okay. I actually thought the unlying uh, the 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 unlying God was the Hebrews one. I just have them backwards. Um, okay. So Titus is the un, the God who the unlying God the the God who does not lie. Ever, uh, and Hebrews six is <laughs> it's impossible for that's the adunimus. It's impossible to lie, right? So mm -hmm. I just got which one it said, but that's fine. There, right? So no, but the no point problem. is is that we have these clear statements that God is unlying and cannot lie. That's the basis for our hope. And so when we redirect these passages, going going back to to numbers though. Um, and we're, we're in an hour and a half. So I, you know, I, I think we, I, I'll, I'll talk to your Jonah point and then give you the last word okay. and then let's, let's go to some questions. Okay, uh, great. I did. I mean, honestly, you know, honestly, it's, it's been a pretty good discussion. I think. I agree. Uh, uh, so going, going to numbers though, back to, back to the thing, I, I don't think there's a reason to split it up. Right. It, it would be like saying, um, God's not a, uh, I mean, how do I think of a good example? Um, a rock isn't water that it uh, that it isn't a liquid at room temperature uh, and and doesn't rehydrate us when we're when we're dehydrated, right? It seems to say that because it doesn't meet this first condition, it doesn't meet either of these other two things equally. Right. So, so what you would have to say in that example is say, okay, well, it's not a rock that it doesn't, it's not a liquid at room temperature, but it can hydrate us in some sense when we're dehydrated. Right. Well, well no, the, the principle just seems to be that if it isn't this one thing, that's why it's not equally not these other two things. Right. And I, I would need some disjunctive for why we could break that up. But so, so, but my point was going, we have these other two verses that are much more clear that God cannot lie. Um, does not lie, cannot lie. So when we come and we compare these two readings in, in, in numbers, right? Because numbers, the, the, the Hebrew is vague. It could be read as a subjunctive that way. We shouldn't read it as a subjunctive that way because we have the clearer statements that God cannot lie. So when then we go to something like Jonah, right? So, so in Jonah four, uh, the, the exact verse, uh, four, two. Right, I'm trying to look at the exact verse, right? So four two. Okay, we have to remember the in in, in Hebrews and and this is this is again I'm and I, I I hope this doesn't come across as condescending. I'm not like trying to give you like a hermeneutics lesson. I'm just explaining exegetically why I would make these maneuvers, right? Mm -hmm. In Titus, it's the third person omniscient, right? It's it's the narrator stating the position, Hebrews. The author stating the position in numbers, third person omniscient narrator 
stating the exact statement that was the word of the Lord to Numbers. In wait, 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 wait. All right. Can you say that again about Numbers? What's your position on Numbers? So, so in Numbers, the narrator of Numbers, third person omniscient, is saying, this is what God said. These are the words that God put in the mouth of Balaam, right? This mm -hmm. is what the Lord has said. In Jonah, what's happening is the third person omniscient is saying, this is what Jonah has said out of his own heart. Jonah isn't giving a prophecy and Jonah's statement isn't necessarily the view of the narrator, right? So th this, this is why the, narrator? The, this, the, the, narr who, the author of Jonah, whatever, whatever the, the author of Jonah, I, I don't think it's Jonah. Jonah didn't write the book of Jonah. Um, but whoever the narrator is, is saying, this is what Jonah has said. There's no indication that this is what the Lord has said in the mouth of Jonah, like in Numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'm not saying that Jonah is therefore wrong, but I am saying there are all kinds of narrative examples where we see, we see this in the book of Job all the time, right? Where the narrator is infallibly presenting the words of the person that they're quoting but it's not necessarily the case that those views, you know, kind, kind of like the TV, the, the views expressed here are not necessarily the views of this, of this channel, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the case that Jonah is teaching infallibly that God changes his mind. Right. Jonah is saying the reason why I left is because you are the God who is slow to anger, abundant in mercy, the one who relents of a disaster. Now, I would say Naham doesn't necessarily mean a change of mind. It can mean relent. It can mean that 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 position change, right? So, for example, when I when I tell my kids, you need to behave or we're not going to Disneyland, and right now you're not behaving, so it looks like we're not going to Disneyland. If they start behaving and we go to Disneyland, I have, from their perspective, I have Nahamed. I have relented of the negative outcome that I have that I had put upon them. Mm -hmm. Now, have I actually changed my mind? No, I intend to go the entire time, right? So a dispositional change like that doesn't necessarily have to mean learning new information, a change of mind, right? So I'd already say that. But it doesn't seem also uh, that Jonah is necessarily teaching the infallibly that God can change his mind or does change his mind. Um, and he says, so now, Lord, please take my life from me for the death is better than to me than life. Would we equally say, oh, well, then, yeah, Jonah's death is better than life because Jonah said it? No, we think Jonah's wrong there. Um, and that's okay. Jonah is simply expressing his own fear and anxiety about the, 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 the happenstance here and around Nineveh. So, again, the narrative, what you're pointing to in Jonah, you're trying to actually, from, from my perspective, is we have clear didactic statements in Titus and in Hebrews that are controlling for how we should understand numbers. Only with lying, not repenting. Okay, but but again, I would need a really good reason to break those two things. I, I have a good reason to break them. Okay. We'll go, we'll I just came up with it. Okay, let I me come back to it. Let me let me just wrap this statement up and then and then I'll give you the last word. You okay, can great. have it. I won't respond. Thanks. Is is that what you seem to want to do? Is to say, okay, well, we have we have these two examples. We have this. We have this. These two readings of numbers that we could read, 
And I'm going to read them in light of a less clear than Titus and, and Hebrews in Jonah, where it's not even infallibly saying what the Lord is actually teaching. It's, it's where we have Jonah saying what's on his heart, and we know the very next statement of Jonah is wrong. But I'm going to, but you're going to use that to, to reverse engineer and interpret numbers. And then now you're going to have to go and reinterpret Titus and, and Hebrews to match that. Like you, it seems to me that you just have the hermeneutical arrow backwards, if that makes sense. So I'll, I'll that, that's the last of my statements. Have the last word, how you, how you break that. I'll, I'll bite my tongue, even no matter how much I say it, have the last word. And then we'll go to, for, for those listening, uh, I'm going to scroll through to see if I see questions. If you haven't already prefaced it with a big caps question so I can identify them uh, and you want to restate your questions, do so now. Um, uh, if you, if you have questions, put them in and we'll, and we'll get there. Okay. So here, here are my thoughts. Number one, um, I, I highly doubt that you think that we should not trust that Jonah is speaking accurately about God when he re refers to God as gracious, when he refers to God as merciful, when he refers to God as slow to anger, and when he refers to God as abundant and loving kindness. Uh, the only one that you take issue with is that God repents. And so I think that that is problematic. I would say that if all I had was Jonah 4.2, that would not be ideal, but there's 25 other places where God says he repents out of his own mouth, where the narrator and the author say that God repents, and where men of God say that God repents. So I think that from my vantage point, it's, it's clear that God does repent. Um, to break up the lying and the repentance, which you asked me to do, uh, changing one's mind and repenting is not sinful, whereas lying is. And so I think that's, that uh, successfully breaks those two up. Okay. I could respond, but I, I won't. I said I won't. So uh, we'll go. Maybe I, I, well, I might if we don't get any questions, but uh, let me, let me look through. Uh, I'm well, really well, not good at looking at the, uh, at looking at the side chat. Yeah. So. And by the way, and by the way, while you're looking, I'll, I'll just put one more point on that. Cause I've actually said this before. Um, if, if my, if my wife says something to my kids, and it, and it appears that they're like not necessarily taking her seriously or, or not believing her. I could say something like this, and I probably have said this to them. I would say something like, listen, you guys, you know your mom doesn't lie. You know your mom is not a liar. You've never heard her lie once. So she's definitely not lying when she says that to you. And number two, you can see by her anger, she's not gonna change her mind. So you better obey. And when I do that, uh, I, I'm making two different statements about my wife. One has to do with her character, which is you've never seen her lie. She's unlying. She doesn't lie. The second one is you can tell, uh, of course, she changes her mind. She's changed her mind a million times throughout her life. But you can tell in this situation, because she's being so firm with what she's saying, that in this in instance, she's not going to change her mind. And that's what I see in numbers. I'm, I'm curious, uh, still waiting. Uh, there's no real questions coming through, so uh, okay. we'll, we'll probably wrap it up anyways. But just, That's fine. I won't respond, but I'm, I'm actually curious as a, just as a question then to, to kind of hash that out a little bit. Do you, like, you, you, maybe, maybe your wife is the same, but you know your wife has lied before, right? Say that again? I mean, your wife has lied before, right? 
Most likely. I can't think of it in a specific example of a lie. Most likely, sure. Yeah. But again, I'm not I'm not trying to elevate her to God's level. I'm just trying right. to make a point. Right. But but I'm curious though, because when you when you tell your kids like you know your mom doesn't lie, right? You don't actually mean that she's never lied. No. Right? So no. so I and again Again, I, it's, I, it's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make you make your analogy, you know, fit every single detail to, but you, you would, I, I don't know, maybe you would, would you, would you say that the language in numbers that says, or, or, or in Titus or in Hebrews that says God cannot lie, that, that it's that type of hyperbole that it says that it's like saying, you know, your God is an unlying God, even though he has lied in the past. Like, no, 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 no. I, I, that type again, of hyperbole? When, when I'm using an example with God and I'm using the example with a man, in this case, my wife, uh, th th there's always going to be a, there's always going to be a difference there. But I, I think my point comes through. It, so is there always going to be, because if you say there's always going to be a difference, that's literally why classical, the you know, I said all language about God is analogical because there's always a difference. It, it, it doesn't map on directly. Um, that's one of the reasons why we hold to analogical language about God. Yeah, I, I'm saying in this example, there's going to be a difference. Like, like I, I think the audience that, that's listening can understand that I can make a statement about my wife and one is referring to her character and something that she generally does not do. The other statement has to do with something she's done a million times, but she's not going to do it in that instance. That's what I'm saying is true about God. In Numbers 23, 19, one statement is something about his character, and the other one is something that he's done dozens of times in the Bible, but isn't going to do in that example. Okay. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, leave, we'll leave it there. There's a uh, question from Shamez. Oh, we could uh, do it after this one. Okay, yeah. This this is the one I... We'll go back to... I didn't see Shamez. Um, so this one, uh, one, one guy, by the, uh, I misread this name for a long time. It's not God is nowhere. It's God is now here. Yes. <laughs> Big difference. Uh, but he says a uh, question for both, right? So this is for, for you and I, uh, did God predestine me to search him, uh, and know him through his word, leading me to the conclusion that I have free will and interpret the scriptures as an open theist. You want to go first or should I, uh, I mean, I, I can go first. The, the answer is yes. I think God predestines all things. Yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting question. I like it. Uh, I've thought about this. Um, if Calvinism is true, and again, I don't think it is, but if Calvinism is true, open theism originated in God's mind. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah, and I would agree, I would agree with you that it originated in God's mind depending on what you mean by originate. Do, do, does that mean uh, that he's causally responsible for it? No. Uh, right. But he, but he decreed and determined all things. So yeah, I actually that's think a, that's a different rabbit trail. Yeah, I, I actually think author is the, is the best word for God's decree because a, a book that's printed at a printing press did not originate there. It originated in the author's mind. Yeah. And the, and the author analogy is, is, is helpful in some sense and not in other sense. There's a, there was a really, really good discussion uh, because this always comes. Oh well, that makes God the author of sin. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that by, by the author analogy, like a lot of things, has like 
10 different ways you could take that, right? There's there's a bunch of different types of authorial relationships and, and, and how that relates to causation and all that kind of stuff. There's a really helpful discussion between uh, Guillaume Bignon uh, on Eli, Eli Ayala's show, Revealed Apologetics, where he's responding to William Lane Craig in his debate with uh, James White. It's mm. a lot of levels removed from the actual discussion. But he basically shows, look, if, if by author you mean it in this one sense, this is trivially true, but nothing really follows from that. Like everybody would agree, open theists would agree to that. Everyone agrees to that, right? If you mean it in that really trivial sense. If you mean it in this other sense that would be needed for that critique to work, then no, we don't, reform don't actually believe that. So it's a straw man of our view. So he, he shows, well, it, it really depends on what you mean by that. Um, because you, you can't beg the question against our view, but if you mean it in this uh -huh. trivial sense, then nothing interesting follows from it. So it's a really interesting, I'm, he takes two hours developing. I'm not going to go into that here. Uh, but it's a really interesting discussion. Uh, where was the... Sh uh, it's either Shemez or Shemez. He said, is there a verse from God's perspective, maybe through a prophet that he repents? Oh, yep. Uh, can yeah, I give two, can I give, can I yeah, give two examples? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. So the first one I'd like to give is found in Exodus 32. Um, th this is a really important uh, text. Just give me like 30 seconds here to, to work through this. So in verse 12, uh, starting in verse 11, actually, it says Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and he, he says all of these arguments. And then he ends with repent from this harm to your people that, that God just said that he would do. Uh, and that's the Hebrew word Nacham there. And then in verse 14, it says, so the Lord repented from the harm, which he said he would do to his people. So that's the first example. And for Shemez, I would like to just point out two things there. One, it says that God repented. And two, Moses uh, believed that God re would repent, which is why he asked him to do it. And so I think that the fact that somebody who is as close to God as Moses th thought he repented, I think that's a good argument that he does. And then the second example I'd like to give is uh, Jeremiah 18. This is God talking. Uh, verse... Uh, eight, seven and eight says, God is, says out of his own mouth, the instant, instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And then Shemez, Shemez, if I'm pronouncing that right, what I'd like to point you out to, to Jeremiah uh, 18 is two things. One, God is speaking there about himself. And two, God says he will repent of something that he thought he was going to do. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'll just respond by um, exegetically. I just don't think those are sound readings. Um, the Naham can mean repent. Um, Hebrew is interesting, right? He, Hebrew has 60,000 words, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually very, very small to do all the heavy lifting that in English we do with over a million words. Um, so Naham can mean repent, it can mean relent, it can mean to comfort, it can mean to mourn, it can mean to have compassion, it can mean to be to, to relieve other people of certain burdens, uh, it can mean to console other people. Like Naham is 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 a word that actually has a very, very wide lexical use. Um not all words in Hebrew are this way. Some some kind of keep within within some pretty tight lexical confines. Naham is all over the place, um, to be frank. So I would, 
again, I'm not saying your reading is wrong, although I think it is. I would say you you just you simply would need to do a lot more spade work to go from because one English translation. So I, like I put up the NASB specifically because it says um, uh, to relent of uh, your burning anger and to relent of because relent is just a change of course, right? It doesn't necessarily actually mean a change of mind. So I, I, I see relent when I, when I study the word relent, here's what I see. I, I see that like you, you twist someone's arm behind their back until they give in. And so I don't think God does that. Yeah. I would just say that's not relent. Doesn't necessarily take that tone. You could force somebody to relent, but someone could, could gladly relent. Hmm. Right. I can, I gladly relent of not going to Disneyland with my kids. I'm happy to, cause I already paid for it and I was planning on going anyways. And so I, I, I relent of the negative consequence that I told them that it doesn't have to be this a twisting of arms to relent. Hmm. Right. So, and, and again, the fact that Naham within the lexical coloring is to have compassion on, I'm not sure that it necessarily, e even on the relenting side, I'm not necessarily sure that that it also kind of means like, well, darn it. Now I have to relent. I, like it, it, I'm not sure that that's in there. Um, so, so I would simply say that when, when you're looking at a passage like this, when, when, um, whether it's in Jeremiah 18, where he says, look, if they, if they, if, if they change their ways, I'll happily relent of the disaster that I said that would come if they didn't change their ways. I don't think it actually gets you to what, um, Seamus was asking, which is, do you, do you have a passage where a prophet is saying by the word of God, God has changed his mind. Mm -hmm. Not just that God would relent of disaster if people change their behavior, right? Because I yeah. don't think that that gets you what, what, what you would need it to get you. Yeah. First Samuel 15, 11 and first Samuel 15, 35 say that just for shame as his, uh, take, by the way, shame has posted the NET and, uh, I, I agree with you there, Shamez. That that translation actually uh, is is something that would affirm what I'm saying, where it says, "I will cancel the destruction I intended to do to it." I, I'm saying that God actually intended and thought He would destroy a nation when He repents of of doing so, and so that's where the change of mind comes into play. Yeah, but I mean, let me look at the Hebrew really fast because I think that that is not actually in the. I, I think that's a that's an interpretive gloss. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. That's an interpretive gloss from Naham. There's no other in, intent is not in, in, in the intent is not in the, in the, it's not a literal translation from the text. Right. So that, that's the interpretive yeah. gloss. Now, so you might find that interpretation favorable. Uh, I mean, not saying that this is you're doing this. This is like one of my problems with, uh, have you ever read the purpose driven life? No. Uh, I mean, the purpose of I, I, I usually, I, 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 not to be uncharitable, but uh, Rick Warren uses like a hundred different, ver, you know, versions and translations because he, it seems like he just picks the English version that supports the view that he wants without any exegetical support mm. for why. Um, again, I'm not saying that that's the wrong exegetical one. You just have to make that case. And I'm not sure you could make that case simply from the, the context and, and, and relent. Um, sure. So. Uh, uh, this one, 
did God predestine hundreds of millions of babies to be killed in the womb? If yes, what's your biblical support for this position? It's for both of us, but I think the, the clear, the clear uh, victim is me. Uh, <laughs> the answer is, yeah, again, God predestines all things. Um, I know there's an emotional weight behind this, but again, uh, without begging the question of incompatibilism, nothing interesting really follows from this, right? Determinism just is, did God determine this? Yes. Did God determine this? Yes. Did God predestine, you know, yeah. Predestination just is God predestines all things. Determinism is just, God determines all things. In order for you to say something illegitimate follows from that, you need to actually build the case. And it can't just be, well, that somehow illegitimately ties God to evil because we could go through all kinds of biblical examples where God causes, plans, predestines, brings about by his own hand, evil. Um, and so does that make God, it seems to be the principle, if God brings about or predestines or plans or causes evil, then it makes God, it somehow illegitimately makes God evil. Well, we could just have countless examples where God expressly takes credit or by his hand this brought about or by his plan or he causes it or, you know, you have all these kinds of things when it comes to evil. You would, you would just be stuck saying that that if that's in principle the case, that God is in principle evil according to the Bible. So And I, and I don't think that they would want to go that far. I'll just say real quick, you know, my obviously my position on this is different. I think that God does not desire abortion uh is is pained by abortion and i think it would be a good thing to mention here real quick that uh roe v wade was overturned today which i think is a good thing it's obviously not the greatest thing but there's still a lot of work to do but i think it's a good thing yeah cool well i think this is a good discussion yeah, I think so. Uh, I I don't really see any other any other questions coming in. Um, so I, I I appreciate you you coming on. Uh, I know it's a, uh, it's a you know it can it can be you didn't seem unnerved, but sometimes you can come unnerved on a show where you where you know the person just doesn't agree with you on things. So I, I appreciate you coming on. And again, I, I've always found you to be a respectful person. That shouldn't that should go without saying for for most people, but sadly it doesn't. So I shouldn't have to say that. But uh, for those for those watching. Uh, and, and for those, you know, in, again, so, sorry, everyone in classical and historic Christian Christendom is, is opposed to open theism. So it's not just a reformed Calvinistic thing, but anyone watching this, like, you know, stop, stop being jerks. We, we can engage in these types of things, um, with, without some of the tactics that, that I've seen, uh, you, you, you victim of before. So, um, uh, I, I appreciate, uh, you, you continue to have these discussions, uh, uh, with the, with the kind and, and, uh, uh, kind demeanor that you have. So thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. All, All right. right. Well, uh, for the, for those of you who are watching or, or for the, you know, who, who don't, who don't know you and don't know, uh, your, your website and where to find you, where, where can people, if they want to see some more of these engages or some of your resources. Yeah. yeah check out, uh, opentheism.com and you can also check out, uh, akf.church. AKF stands for Agape Kingdom Fellowship. All right. Uh, and, and for those who, who want to discuss with both of us at the same time, we're both in the uh, shout out to Derek. We're both in the Irresistible Truth group on Facebook. Yep. Um, if you want to, you know, put, put a post there and tag us both. We're both in that in that group. So I know that I'm sure we're in other groups together, too, but that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head where we both are. If people want to talk to both of us. So uh, thank you again for, uh, so much for, for joining me. Um, 
All right. Uh, thank you. I hope you all found this to be a, a productive conversation, helpful uh, to highlight some of the differences and the disagreements we have um, and, and how we can discuss these things uh, in a, a charitable uh, and kind uh, way to each other, even though we have some pretty, pretty fundamental disagreements. So thank you so much for joining. Uh, please come back anytime. You can check out the content here at The Freed Thinker on YouTube. You can head on over to the Freed Thinker uh, podcast blogspot.com to find the blog. You can find all the content there. You can find the podcast uh, on anywhere where podcasts are found, pretty much every single podcasting app. Um, or uh, you can follow the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. So 